Welcome to Near and Far, the World Catholicism Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cavanaugh, Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University in Chicago. Hello and welcome to Near and Far, the podcast of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University. My name is Bill Cavanaugh. I'm the director of the center, and I'm delighted today to have as our guest Father Joe Fitzgerald, a Vincentian priest who is originally from Philadelphia but has been working in Panama since uh, 2005. Is that right, Joe? Yes. Yeah. So um, ordained in 2005, has an MA in Global Development and Social Justice from St. John's University in New York, a PhD in Theology from the Pontifical Bolivarian University in Bogota, Colombia, and um, has been working with the Nobe people in uh, Panama since 2007? Yes. Uh, it's been an interesting journey, and I wonder if you could maybe just kind of uh, start out by telling us how you made it from Philadelphia to Panama. What's your, how did you become a priest? What's your story? Sure. Um, so to, hello to all the listeners here on, the, on this podcast. Uh, and to talk a little about my own story, so from Philadelphia, my mom an Irish immigrant, a very, uh, very dedicated Catholic family in terms of, um, you know, sacramental life, daily communicants, but also very focused on service. Uh, just the parents who were very conscious of, of, of gearing us towards that part of our faith and being in service of others. So it was something that was kind of growing in me. But as a young person, never had a particular attraction towards uh, priesthood or missionary. It never entered into my <laughs> into my plan. Um, so actually, when I graduated high school, I went to uh, I went to a number of colleges, starting with uh, aerospace engineering, and then into the health field, and then worked in uh, in weight loss and recreation therapy. While I also played drums in an Irish rock band in the, the in the East Coast area for oh, awesome. a number of years. So as you know, but there was always something still there was something growing inside of me in terms of that, like connecting the faith and service piece. Um, and so with the orientation of some friends and some, 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 some people who are very dedicated, I would say more formed than myself in this, in this realm, um, I started doing some service experience and, and, and things like that. And then I just thought, what if I really threw myself into this? What would that look like? And so um, for me, it wasn't a surprise. I think for some of my close family, it wasn't a surprise. For my girlfriend at the time, it was, wasn't all that much of a surprise because she was a big influence in terms of a dedicated, she's actually a religion teacher. Um, at, at, at a Catholic high school and, and just really kind of geared me towards being a little deeper in my faith. So when I decided um, to investigate it uh, and go to retreats and things like that, I came across a Vincentian who was working in AIDS ministry at this point. Uh, and this is the late 90s in, in Philly. And I had an uncle who was a Vincentian priest. But, but my uncle John was like, he was my uncle. And so he came and did all the, the baptisms and weddings, stuff like that. But I didn't know much about the Vincentians, uh, apart from my, you know, my uncle. Um, but I was invited to, to kind of know the Vincentians and the, the spirituality and the service of the poor, finding Christ in the poor. And so it just seemed like, it immediately it seemed like the place. It kind of seemed like home. 
So about a year of this process of kind of like separating myself from my professional career, my my my, my drummer persona. Uh, <laughs> Did you were you drumming an Irish drum a ballroom? No, no, or just I, a, well, I played okay. the boron, but I also it was mainly drum set. So okay. kind of like it was kind of like a rock setup for Irish traditional songs, okay. so like guitars yeah. and drum stuff. So. Um, yeah, and so then, so then, in in at, at twenty nine years old in uh, nineteen ninety nine, I went up to New York to start uh, Priestly Formation. Um, it was a year at St. John's doing philosophy to have enough to <clears throat> to have a philosophy degree, and go into the seminary there. And along that way, um, and we do a lot of work with 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 uh, Latino immigrants in the United States, Hispanic immigrants um, on the East Coast in in New York and New Jersey, Philadelphia, North Carolina, Alabama. And so I kind of right away said, well, I want to move into that. I want to learn the language and the culture and those kinds of things and prepare myself well. Um, so I had the opportunity to go to Panama, meaning to learn the language, and just loved, I love the pastoral model and the people more than anything. We have mission parishes where your parish is really, you know, 50 communities throughout the mountains that you go and really working with lay leaders and all that kind of stuff. So I just found it very attractive, um, the model of ministry. And then afterwards, I had a chance to go to, to Peru, and, and, and Bolivia and then go back to Panama again as a deacon experience and this time go to the indigenous area. And then it just really kind of captured my heart. <laughs> so when, they, when I was getting close to ordination in, in 2005, they said, you know, so where do you see yourself? Would you give your gifts and service of the mission? Like that stuff. I said, well, if you ask me, it would be Panama. If you ask more specifically, it would be amongst the Malay people up in Sunlight. <laughs> and so after the, the, the decision makers decided on all that, they came back and said, okay, we're going to let you go to, to Panama for a couple of years. Um, but you can't go right up and you can't go up to the indigenous area. It'd be too hard to just make that leap, which I understood. So I went to Panama in 2005 after ordination. Uh, and there was a need for another pension to be. I was an elder confer up in the school area at the time. Um, we couldn't really get out anymore to the far communities because, you know, it's by horse and by foot and, and, and a kind of rough living in a lot of sense. Um, so I just always made it known that I'd be willing, you know, when they would let me go. So after about a year and a half working with um, the communities on the frontier of Panama and Costa Rica, which are really uh, small farming communities and a lot of indigenous populations, especially as farmhands. Um, then I actually went to the to Soloy, which is a, which is uh, the indigenous comarca. Well, here we would, in the states might call a reservation, a designated zone for that. And so it was 2007. I showed up there, and and time flies, and, <laughs> <laughs> and here I am. So. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, so you really work at the intersection, both in your pastoral work and in your uh, more scholarly work. You kind of work at the intersection of Catholicism and indigenous uh, culture. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about um, the the people that you live with, uh, the landscape that you live in. Sure. Um, what would be a typical day for you if there is such a thing? Yeah, so so uh, like I mentioned, I'm in the Comarca, which would be like the equivalent of like a kind of a reservation, which the Nove, along with the, a, a, a smaller indigenous group called the Bugle, they, they united to, to fight for their, to, for their, own, their own land um, because of uh, a lot of difficulties of not having a protected land in, in terms of your culture and your way of life and those kinds of things. So it was in 1997 that they finally formed the Comarca Nove Bugle. Uh, and the Nove are about uh, a quarter million people, so it's just, just the Nove population. So it's a large population. Panama is less than four million people in, in, in all. And about 13% of that, of that Panama population are indigenous. So it's much higher, for example, than the United States. Not as big as a place like Guatemala or, or Bolivia, but, but a, a, large, a large population. Um, and it's very, the Comarca, it's very rugged territory. Um, 
there's been a lot of change even in the years that I've been here, 12, 13 years. Um, but still g going up to the entering the, 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 the first little town, that's where the road, the, the paved road stops. When I first went, the, the paved road didn't even get that far, but now it gets to there. So from there, it's up, it's, you know, it's through streams and rivers and, and, and rough roads and pickup. And then a lot of times to a certain point, and then from there by horse. And then some places you wouldn't even want to, it'd be too much of a bother to take a horse, you're just on foot. <laughs> um, you never so, rode a horse in Philadelphia. No, not in you know, maybe like a, a county fair or something like that. Yeah. But now it's just a part of life. So we have, we actually have horse. So we have two pickup trucks and two horses is, is, the, is oh, the parish. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so the people are very dispersed. So like in our area um, that we serve in, in ministry, maybe about 200 small villages. And about 50 of those, we would have a presence uh, 20 of those who would have a chapel that would now have like you know lay ministers, uh, delegates of the word, catechists, youth groups. A lot of the other communities, uh, there might be a Catholic population, but we might meet uh, you know in the dry season under a mango tree. It might be a, a, near, near someone's house. It might be in the, in a school classroom. And there's other communities that we also accompany that we know there's not a Catholic population. So uh, the normal population in terms of uh, religious affiliation, um, mostly all Christian. But a, but a real mix of, of, of the different Christian faiths. So maybe about 25% Catholic, whereas Panamanian, Panamanian culture in general would be higher than that. It would be like 85% or something like that. Um, what what accounts so, for that? Why, um, why the disparity? Why? Yeah, I think because of the evangelization process, because it was really only after Vatican II and that kind of push of congregations to go into areas that it had, had not had a, a real solid presence. Um, so you, you look at... Where we're at in Saloy, it wasn't until the Vincentian went there in the 80s that we established the first chapel in that area. Oh. Before that, the people would have actually walked down a lot of times, maybe a two-day hike to go down to a, a feast day in a town and baptize their children and then go back up the, the, to the community. And so they're like, they, would have, they would have Eucharist once a year, and it would be a, a far journey to get to that. And so... Um, when the Catholic Church had come into where I'm at and in other areas, it was also accompanied by a lot of the other churches coming at the same time. So it was really like a diversity of, of presence of churches, um, uh, a bit distinct than Panama in general, which would generally have like a kind of like a Catholic history and then other denominations that came in. Um, whereas the indigenous lands, people would have been uh, maybe generally Catholic, but not with the real not with the real presence of the of the of the church until mm. very recent history comparative to the to the history of the, of the church in the country for example yeah interesting so yeah. the isolation of the, isolation, the yeah. area then it would have um, had its both its advantages and its disadvantages i right. suppose it's um, it's made it easier to maintain indigenous culture um, maybe a little bit easier to resist some of the mining and hydroelectric programs that have gone through. Um, I, I understand that uh, in a lot of Latin America and other places, mining and hydroelectric uh, programs have really kind of disrupted uh, communities. Um, but you, you, in the, the Nove people seem to have uh, avoided that somehow. Well, yeah, in some, in some sense, or, or to say that they successfully stopped it is, is really mm -hmm. not so much avoided in the sense that it wasn't in, in sight. Actually, the contrary, right above where we are is what's considered the second largest copper deposit in the world, uh, oh. in the mountains. So it's, it's, it's for, for, for decades been in the site of, of the international mining industry. It was first discovered by a Canadian company in the 60s. Um, 
but it has been a constant issue and it's one of those consensus issues amongst the Nobe. That's not gonna happen here, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so mining is a new industry in, in Panama. Uh, the, the first real mine with, with real export is just happened this past year. So I mean, and different in other countries that have had decades or even centuries of, of mining industry, it's, it's new in Panama. Um, and a lot of kind of discussion against it in a general sense or politically or academically and those kinds of things, but it was really the Nobe that came together and just said no. So uh, in, in 2011, the president at the time changed the mining laws and executive order that would have allowed, because uh, there was some countries that were interested in coming in kind of like as a state, and so they actually changed mining law that would permit a foreign state to come in and mine. Um, apart from the companies and do quasi. So it was this whole package that would have just really forcefully came into the Nobe lands and opened up mining. Um, and so it just really united the people and the people just came down from the mountains and, and protested in 2011 to the point where the government said they'd have a, a dialogue table. But it just kept kind of like going around without any real results. Uh, and then in 2012, the Nobe just made the decision. They came down, just shut down the Inter-American Highway. As you know, Central America, especially Panama, is the only road that goes through. So if you go to Costa Rica to Panama City, your only option is the American Highway, <laughs> unless you're going to walk up in the mountains. Um, so they just closed it down about a 50-mile stretch at 11 different points, um, you know, which strategically the, the government couldn't handle. For five days, the government organized, and then when the government attacked, they attacked violently at all the 11 points, uh, killed two young Nobe men, and injured hundreds. Um, and the church was very... Uh, you know, we as the missionaries that accompanied the Nobe in their struggles, and then also the bishops that uh, that accompanied trying to look for dialogue were very essential in it. And so after the, the, we, the day before the attack, we were waiting for the government with the Nobe leadership, and the government didn't show up, and the next day attacked the Nobe. And then the following day, the government did show up, and then it was negotiated with the cardinal, uh, a peace accord that then, through a process facilitated by the United Nations, uh, produced a, a special environmental law that prohibits mineral mining in the, in the Comarca Noe Bugle and provides a special process of consensus from the communities for anything that affects natural resources like a, like a dam. So nobody's touched it since. So the, so the mining, mining is out. A dam would be a possibility, but neither the government or a company has, has touched it because they know it's such a, you know, I mean, if they eventually touch it, it would be a different thing, but at this point wouldn't wouldn't come in at this point and say we want to pop the dam. Yeah. Um, so it's just one of those examples of the Nobe as a, as a people who, who build around consensus and decide what's what's from their own identity and the life that they consider a dignified life, and especially whether that's tied into to, to being a, an integral part of creation and their concept of kind of like an interconnected web of life and what it would mean to just destroy the mountains and the rivers by opening you know, copper or gold mines. So it's just not acceptable. So they didn't accept it. And so, <laughs> so that provoked kind of two, it provoked in some sense uh, nationally from certain sectors, it provoked some kind of like a bit of admiration in terms of what they were able to accomplish that others weren't able to. But then it also provoked a bit of, um, you know, criticism, even racism in saying that they're not, you know, are, are they true Panamanians? This is, or they don't want development or they're not on the, they're not on board with what the country's doing, that kind of stuff. And so it's just a reality the Nobe ha have to deal with yeah. um, in terms of like defending their own identity and, and their, their particular way of living, their understanding of, of, uh, of being responsible to be in harmony with creation and not just destroying, you know, uh, 
especially when you are, are turning natural resources into market goods. It's not their concept of, of our relationship with the land. It's a very it's a very intimate relationship with the land that needs just constant regeneration and, and those kinds of things. Was there any section of the Nobe that thought, hmm, this um, this could be a way out of poverty? Yeah, there was. It, it, I wouldn't say a sector. What what happened was. Um, for example, Chilean mine companies, a consortium of Chilean mine companies, put, to, put together an NGO with the Nobe uh, directive to promote, but they did, the, you know, but it was in a manipulative way. So it wasn't oh. even, you didn't talk about mining. So it was a pro-development NGO. <laughs> and so it was soccer, it was uniforms for the soccer teams. It was a computer, a computer lab at the local school with, with solar panels. And so it was these kinds of things. And then just a few very small group that was talking about, we have a right to this, we have a right to this, we have a right to this. And the solution so that would all happen would be give it, let, the, let the mining happen. And so everybody was key to it. And, and, and so it, it wasn't effective, but it's a sad reality yeah. that, that um, you know, the pressure that comes in a lot of different ways. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, the Nobe, although, you know, for the past eight years, mining's been off the table in a, in a legal sense. Um, but the people, the people know that that there's those pressures that come in different ways. That you could, in a generation, convince a new generation that it is the way. If you change their cosmovision, if you change their understanding of responsibility and and, and, and way of life, and so, uh, so it's still there, conversation-wise, even though it's not protests in the street because there's no there's no mine. You know, everything was yeah. canceled, so there's no mining <laughs> concessions. Um, but yeah, so so I would say, and another another sad thing, like in a lot of communities, you know. The government doesn't want to deal with the people like the Nobe. They want to deal with a person, especially somebody that can sign in front of legal entities, um, you know, in front of the UN in terms of the indigenous rights and things like that. They want someone that can sign the paper that says this is okay. So there's a lot of pressure for Nobe leadership to kind of just side with the government and accept what it, you know, what the government wants to do, you know, without the Nobe consent or against the Nobe consensus. And so that's constantly there. Um, and a constant struggle with the Nobe to have a, you know their leadership that truly is when they when they are outside the Nobe context are truly working in favor of the Nobe uh, you know values and and, and and those kinds of things. Um, so it's it's difficult, you yeah. know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's, no, it's kind of a never ending uh, battle. <laughs> yeah, it's a battle that a lot of other yeah. communities have lost in in Latin America. Mm -hmm. So you're um, uh, you're probably not unique, but it's um, probably a minority of the. Communities that have been able to resist what's happened right. to mining. Yeah. An interesting thing, if I could mention it, because of the the whole thing about communities being isolated and how they, especially if they don't have a designated land like a comarca and things like that, and 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 how hard it is to struggle against something like you know the extraction industry, mining companies, and the government, and those kinds of things. Um, as a church, uh, based on Repam, which was the which was the, the the network that was formed in the Amazon, that really kind of led to the Amazon Synod. Um, we just in October in Mexico formed REMAM, which is La Red Ecclesial Ecologica Mesoamericana. So it's the, it's the Mesoamerican uh, Ecclesial Ecological Network. Um, and it's, it's, it's not only indigenous populations, although it's very much takes an option for the indigenous populations throughout Mesoamerica, which is like southern Mexico to, to Panama, it's like a biological corridor. Um, and really looking at uh, this like concept of human ecology. So not like an ecology uh, or an environmentalism that looks at like conservation with uh, by extracting human presence, <laughs> but rather say these are communities that that actually the, the the 
the integrity of the ecosystems is because there's people who live there who actually are, know how to live in harmony and regenerative. It's like, it's like now they say, what's not burning in Australia? The indigenous areas, because the people have a very intricate knowledge of how to not let it burn. Hmm. And, the, and there's even an article about that last week and saying, um, it's just very hard to translate for, for the Western mindset to understand you know, what tending to the forest it ha happens with the indigenous, the aboriginals of, of Australia that doesn't let the forest burn. And just globally, when you look at green zones, when you look at areas that are still intact and ecosystems and mountains and forests and rivers, it's indigenous populations that are living in those areas. It's not because of human absence. It's because of people who have a different mode of life that's, that's in, in, in harmony with, with, the, with the cyclical model of, of, of creation instead of a natural resources kind of like market economy. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's a kind of exciting news in that sense, the psychological network which, uh, which reformed in Mexico and now each country uh, from Mexico to, to Panama forms their, their, their national chapter, which we did uh, in January in Panama. And then we all meet again in September for the first assembly. Uh, and to, to start to have a, a plan. And it's really focused on these things, mining, the hydroelectric dams, deforestation, agrochemicals, um, the displacement of people because of all of these, all of these situations, and to kind of have a, a more of a voice. You talk about like, you know, how to intervention, whether you're political and social and, 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 and all those, at all those spaces, to have more like a unified voice and, and not like everyone kind of, because everyone's kind of working on the same issues, yeah. but everyone's working kind of independently. So it's like, what if we, what if we unite our voices and look, and look at Mesoamerica as one entity, as a biological corridor with a diversity of populations uh, that are all, all looking for a healthy future yeah, <laughs> in that's every really way. Exciting. And then bring it together. Yes, yeah, so it's, it's good news that yeah. these kind of things are happening. Yeah. It, were you inspired by Laudato Si, the Pope Francis's yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, for example, this environmental network, that's the founding document. You know, yeah. that's, that is the document. Uh, it's it's how, to, how to try to live that. And it was interesting that um, uh, a representative actually from, from, the, from the Vatican, the Office of, of, of Human Development, when he talked about Laudato Si, he was talking about the impact it's had globally, and he said the place that's had the least impact is in the church. <laughs> <laughs> so it's one, of the, it's one of the reasons why this network is ecclesial. Uh, it's, it has to start with us because it, it's too easy to to jump over and to be in collaboration with with groups that are already doing stuff and then you know um, and to say we really need to, to we need to kind of look look inside the house and say what what are we doing or not doing right what are are, uh, are maybe as families as parishes as local communities are we are we in line with these kinds of things are we ecological or is it being reduced to, to small activities or, or or things like that and what does it really mean to live in a, a, integral ecology um, and so that's kind of where the, the, the focus is yeah. and that we start to have an impact within the within the church community first and then the collaboration happens flowing from that yeah wow um, you mentioned the word cosmovision a yeah. couple of times yeah. um, with regard to the Nove people and I wonder if you could uh, elaborate on that a little I mean, bit what a, is the Nove cosmovision a, and how does it relate to the um, the Catholic cosmovision right. so I mean, if you, the, the Nova Cosmovision and its various aspects that we're talking about, you know, the, like, well, the cosmos, what it's made up of, and then our presence in, in our relationships and all of this, the, the complexity of all that, starting with, like, the natural parts or, you know, uh, a concept of us as a part of an interconnected web of life and not a hierarchical model of that. So, you know, there's a lot of Nova rituals that involve, you know, I mean, like, the harvest ritual involves a crab who's the first 
person, uh, the first entity fed during the ritual to represent the most humble. And so um, it's not a, it's not. A, it's not a concept of like elevating other life and, 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 and degrading human life. It's to say that the whole model of hierarchy is just wrong in its concept is what the knowing would say. Mm-hmm. You know, we all have our part, we all have our place. Uh, God loves us and it, does, it doesn't love us less if he loves the crab. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's I think is a, is, a, is a big part of it. And it even, it goes from that, it even goes to, um, to like, to like what we were talking about non-living ent- entities. So if you were to talk about uh, you know, light, when lightning strikes, that's a, in, in the mythology, that's a person. Uh, and so you want to be in dialogue with that so that people will do a ritual dance to tell him that he's not welcome here, that he should be, <laughs> he should far farther, farther from the house. You don't want the lightning to come in. So it's like all these kinds of like, it's a concept of like, we're, we're, we're in this very fragile creation and we have a role to play in keeping the, the balance in it all. And so for everything, there's like, a, there's, a, there's this whole concept of like reciprocity. Um, and how you have to respond to keep the balance when things are happening. I mean, it could be, it could be saying a prayer when when, when harvesting a leaf for, for medicine, um, or it could be the dance to 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 to, to tell the, the lightning to strike other places. Um, but a lot of things that so it, it 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 it's a very different vision of of the world, our connection to what's around us. Um, and then you know, in talking about human relationships and and things like that too, um, you know. It's a hospitality culture where sharing is 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 essential and and, and gift economy, you know, is what you would call it, like from the, the you know sociological anthropological terms, in terms of like the economy. It traditionally was based on everything being kind of gift from God, you know, gift from the earth, and and and, and so that just means you share it freely. Um, so a ritual, even like one of the main rituals of sharing. Uh, it really combines two noble words, home, but the, the, when we talk about noble home, we're not talking about like the hide, we're talking about the whole homestead, the forest, the, the, the river where they, where, they, where they fish and kind of like all the place where they, where they live. Um, it combines home, which is who, and vive, which is kind of like share or give. And it's a rit- ritual where if I didn't have enough crop because something happened to my crop, I could go to you, even if we have no, no relationship, not in the blood relationship or even not known, and I would just say the ritual words. I'm, I'm coming that you might share home and you would just do it and there would be no it, it, it would be an insult to start negotiating it's not like I'm going to pay you back next year There's, it, it doesn't work that way yeah. you're honored to, to share with me and, and, and I have every right to ask you because I might have a big crop next year and then somebody comes and says to me and I should respond in the same way so it's kind of like these concepts of generalized reciprocity and an interesting piece of that is when you talk about all of creation like everything you can see that's all understood as God's house. Nobo is how you would say God in the native language. And so everything's the creators. And we're kind of like in this one big house together. So even, even the traditional Nobe home is built on four pillars the way that the first house was, was, was instructed by, by Nobo in the, in the creation of the earth with humans and animals building it together and following the instructions. And so it's, you know, it, it, when you have that kind of like understanding you know, it, it flows into certain things that are that are that are threatened today. When you talk about individualism, competition, you know, things have to be monetized and, and, and market led instead of free sharing. And, and so and so, even where in the Nobe culture, where where labor was shared, so it was like I call everyone to harvest when I have my corn. You know, and so it's Tuesday we all harvest where I'm at, and then on 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 Thursday we're all we all go to your to your homestead and, and harvest together and so like even like uh, you know labor was shared but 
but now there's more and more, you know, the nomad migrate outside the coal market for, for like salary labor in, in agriculture, for example. So coming back now, there's this, you know, there's this feeling that people said, oh no, people don't want to work together because they, 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 they have, it's not a monetary value. Huh. And so when you call people together to work, they say, well, how much are you paying? You say, well, that, that, you know. So we're bringing like with a different model in um, and there's something lost there in terms of the relationship. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it, the relationship isn't the essential piece. It's more the good or the or the, the labor and that kind of stuff in all the way. So yeah. those kind of things that threat that, that kind of threaten the, the understanding of the of relationship when we really talk about cosmovision, really understand the world and, and our relationship and our place in it. It doesn't sound that too uh, different from the biblical view of relationship yeah. as well. I, You've got you know the Old Testament property is inalienable, and you have the jubilee year and right, you know you have share. paul talking about the body yeah. of christ as kind of e yeah. everybody part of the same body the same nervous system and so right. on i say you know in some sense um you know in, in terms of like uh, in terms of preaching in terms of uh, you know our bible formations and all that kind of stuff event you know the, the world of the bible the, the, the old testament and the gospels like and stuff it just it's just so much easier associated with nobody life i don't have to make <laughs> a big leap you have to do a lot of the explaining around you know when jesus just keeps pulling out agro uh, Examples, you know, everything's yeah. a, it's a, it's a seed or it's a plant or how it grows and does it and that's and so it's very much the, the the life there. So in that sense, and then also those things, relationship, the, the extended family as the base of, of, of life and organization and, and and those kinds of things and 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 so yeah, it is it's 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 closer to a biblical community in a lot of sense in terms of some of the values underlying. So we think that you are in mission territory, but in fact. We're living in mission territory. It's much <laughs> they, much easier for you to preach the gospel in your context they, than, than in ours. They talk about the uh, kind of like the reverse mission is, yeah. is the way that, you know talk about like the global south. Uh, you know, needs to, to do some missioning. <laughs> Go yeah. And I think that's true. Like you know, I think Pope Francis has really uh, captured it since from the beginning of his uh, of his time. He's been talking uh, about the indigenous and to the indigenous, saying you know you have a lot to teach us. Um, you know, we're talking about, even in Laudato Si, when it speaks about certain things in the part about uh, uh, cultural ecology and, and, and things like that and understanding different modes of life and things like that. Um, but I think there is, there's a lot, there's a lot to be learned, uh, you know, in, in, in our cultures, from, from indigenous cultures, other traditional cultures, in terms of the values that they maintain and the consequences of that, especially in a time of ecological crisis, in time of social crisis, in times of you know, just even talking about isolation and, and, and those other things that society kind of suffers from. Uh, when you see communities that are very based on uh, on community life, on the on the on the common good, has, has kind of always been at the foundation of, of yeah. you know of their decision making, of, of making decisions together, of, of intergenerational solidarity, and those kinds of things. It, it, it has a lot it has a lot to say. The testimony of the, of the people says a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Could you? Talk in a little bit more specific terms about maybe some of the um, some of the ritual things that you've brought from uh, Nobe culture into into the church. Sure. So, like, if you were to talk about like Nobe faith um, before uh, before Christianity came, you wouldn't talk about churches or, or that kind of thing. You would talk about spirituality, but very defined and really happened at at, at a more like common level at the household. Uh, with the elders, with people in, within the household defined in terms of the firstborn son, the firstborn uh, daughter, twins, and other people that would be like ritually designated to, to, to do the ritual part. Um, 
and, and like I said, a lot of things that had a lot to do with keeping balance when things were considered out of balance. So there was the sickness, then there's a whole ritual you, you convoke with your neighbors and everyone to come together uh, in prayer, but then also you know with burning beehives and things like that to kind of move away from that area what needed to be purified, those, those kinds of things. Burn, um, burning beehives is a something that has come up uh, yeah. before. So, yeah. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so I don't know if you ask people like why that, and they said, well, you know, how long could you stand there and breathe that in? And so, so if there's anything bad that's roaming around there, it, it'll just chase it away. So <laughs> I haven't gotten like a bigger explanation because of burning the, uh, burning the beehives. Um, the cross is very, um, so there's like the cosmic cross. And so it's like also like with Mayan cultures, a lot of, a lot of Mesoamerican cultures, the symbol of the cross. So we also have an Anobe culture you get balsa wood, which is a, it's like a ritual wood, and you, you, you plant, you know, crosses about, you know, four, four feet high in entrances to homesteads and, and things like that in our chapels also. But, uh, you know, today there would be, there would be an aspect of, of, of the Christian cross in that. But traditionally, it's also just a cosmic cross that, that everything's in, the way we keep everything in order. So it's the rising of the sun to its setting in the south and the north, and, and everything in Nobe culture is done in four. Um, you know, everything's four times. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, even like we, you know, we don't use bells, we use conch shells to, to call people, which is from a, a traditional Nobe ritual. So, you know, you start blowing the conch shell, you know, with this big deep sound that carries through the mountains and you do it four times and you do it in sets of four, four times before that, you know, and so it's all, it would be odd if you did it three times, people would like stand up and say, did he fall over or something, you know, because <laughs> the, it's just four is the number, because it's the cosmic numbers, how, it's how God orders, so is the concept that there's a cross on top of us all, you know, kind of like the four points, it's the way that the world's understood. Um, so those things come in and, and, they're, and they're kind of synthesized, so the cross has that, has that dual meaning, it's, 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 it's creation the way that, that Melville has made it from the beginning, and then it took on the specific meaning in, in, in Christ's sacrifice. Um, so a lot of the other things in terms of that, like, you know, purification rituals and things like that, we go through processes to always to make, you know, it's not just a matter of just importing whatever happens. That's in any culture. And when the gospel comes in any culture, um, it, it, there's, a, there's a process of reflection right, to make sure that it's, you know, it's lived uh, in, in the context of the culture, but that there's any culture is going to have things that need to be kind of removed from it, you know? So like, uh, for example, funeral services have a mix of a lot of traditional Nobe pieces to them. Um, so even like who's digging the hole, it's another thing of balance. So like if an elderly person dies, a young person digs the hole and vice versa if it's another. So it's a balance where you're, if you're facing the sun or the, uh, the sunrise or the sunset is based on if you died in a natural, where you should be just seeing the sunset because you died from as an old age. Uh, or the sun's rise because you died abruptly or young or something. So everything's kind of like ordered in that way. Um, and, and, you know, we would do, we would do the, the Catholic prayers within that whole context of, of all those other pieces. There was something, to give an example of something that maybe that didn't fit, was that years ago they said um, the chief may have ordered that somebody be buried face down as a <laughs> condemnation. <laughs> For whatever reason, maybe they, you know, they, they just seen that, that, you know, they weren't a good person in terms of their commitment to the community, whatever the case was. Um, so the people would talk about that, but they say they don't know anyone that that's happened to. Like, they wouldn't go to the cemetery and say, oh, that, that, that person, that person's okay. face down, you know. But they know of that. But that's an example of just where the gospel came in and then, you know, we're not judging each other. And then the, and the concept that, you know, we're it's not a place to judge each other, rather that God does that or whatever you want to say. Um, so, yeah, there wouldn't be a thought of, of now of, of burying somebody face down in, in, the, 
in the tomb or something yeah, like that. That's really interesting. <laughs> you know, I'm teaching a course right now where we're talking about uh, enculturation with my undergraduates, and it's very easy to to see all of the instances where the church is enriched by taking on aspects of the local culture. But a couple of things I try to get across to my students is that this doesn't only happen in, you know, the global south. It happens in the United States, too. And sometimes it's not so good, right? So there's, there are aspects of every culture right. that aren't compatible with, um, with Christianity. Uh, the example we were talking about in class yesterday was Christmas, how Christmas has become this commercial holiday where you just buy a lot of stuff on Amazon and that's the way you celebrate Christ's <laughs> uh, birth. So you know, in every culture, there's, there, right. there are aspects that are not, not assimilable to, right. to Christianity. Yeah. And, and a lot in, in the process of enculturation, a lot of times it's not particularly reflect. It's not like to sit down and say, what are we doing? It just kind of happens. Yeah. And so even that kind of thing, it's funny when like, you know, with Christmas here, uh, with Christmas, when I'm in with the Nole in Panama, uh, to explain the concept of Christmas tree, for example. That's just a very strange thing. Now, now in Panama City and places like that, you'll have Christmas trees in the mall and also like Santa Claus and Snowman. We're in the tropics, so it's like, you know, it's kind of a funny thing. But the whole thing of, um, of you know, of bringing a tree inside, decorating it and singing songs about it, they say, well, you're, they're pagan rituals you're yeah. doing. <laughs> and so it's kind of, it's a funny thing. They could easily say that. What are you doing with your tree worshiper? Yeah. Um, but no, of course, it's a, it's a kind of thing where like, when you're outside that culture, it looks very strange. Right. I still don't know how to explain the Easter Bunny giving out eggs. I don't know how to explain <laughs> that piece. I don't even, you know, um, because for us, you know, Easter is really the Easter vigil with with the long, you know, Easter vigil celebrating that kind of thing, and, and you know, then then Christ is risen or something. You know? right. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's funny, you know, that every culture, um, what seems just so normal in, yeah. in, in in your process. To another culture would, just, would seem very out of place, or, or even, or even, or even wrong. If, right. You know, can right. Say, well, that's that's not appropriate because we don't understand it or something. You know. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I remember living in Chile, and uh, you know, Easter happens in the southern hemisphere when everything's dying. You right. know, instead yeah. of the kind of spring, you right. know, rituals. I also remember the very sweaty Santa Clauses along <laughs> Paseo Amada, you know, yeah. ninety degrees in right. December. Yeah. Um, so. Talk a little bit more about this um, question of enculturation. So um, you said a lot of it just sort of happens kind yeah. of very naturally. Um, but yeah. at some points, there must be a, a process of discernment. Yeah. And how does that discernment take place? And who who's involved in that yeah. discernment? Um, so like even I talk about, like, for, give the give example of language. So like the nove with, with novere. To really, to either translate something, whether to say like the... the the Eucharistic prayer or a, or a church song. There's a process of enculturation because you can't just substitute the words. It's a different way of, of understanding. Um, so it's really, it's the, it's the people, everything works up with the people, you know, the works, and how would you say that? So how do you, how would you say, you know, uh, this concept of, of, of salvation or peace even, there's no word for saying peace there. So we're just gonna use a, a word for good or do we have to explain it in a, in a visual way and stuff like that? So it's all that, there, there is an example of, of enculturation when it's very intentional, translation of text, or even writing of original text and things like that, which we've also done, original songs in the Novere language. Um, but with other rituals and things like that, uh, yeah, there's, so we have these processes of, of indigenous theology. And I think really the key word there is dialogue. So you look in, so like for example, uh, drinking cacao is, has, a, has a lot of purpose in, in Mesoamerican indigenous uh, cultures, including the Nove. 
and in a lot of different aspects uh, in terms of what it's when it's when it's drank and what it means. It could be, it could be medicinal, but it could be for for solidarity and unity. It could be because someone's sick and and you're all kind of together to to unite and, and that kind of thing. Um, but it was a bit distant from the from the church practice because it also had some some bad parts. Historically, this is another one of those things that people say they can't remember this happening. You know, it's in the farthest past. Um, but that people would have asked the chief for cacao, who would be the distributor of the cacao, kind of like the spiritual uh, like leader. Um, someone would ask for the cacao to drink to, to because they're fighting with somebody else or they're in a problem. So it's almost like you're drinking the cacao, but you're thinking about your your neighbor that took your chicken and you're hoping that he falls ill or something. You know, so it's like <laughs> like a curse. So it was yeah, it was a curse kind of thing. So. So that's another thing that just kind of like faded away. People can't say that they ever remember that. I've, you know, I've, I've never done that. I never knew that my grandparents did and that kind of stuff. It faded away. But there would have been like a bit of a, so, but there's a, in, in general, the cacao is, 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 is a beautiful practice that has a lot of very deep meaning for the people and very uh, in synthesis with, 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 with our Catholic faith. And so how do you bring that in? Well, you bring it in through a process because you can't all of a sudden just have everybody there and all of a sudden say, we're, we're doing the blessing of the cacao and come forward and drink it because people might be very confused. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's it's it workshops with with the elders and with the younger people and talking about it and seeing it and then catechetics in the community of 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 naming like that for example to say like okay so we know that we don't do that and then that we don't we don't think about that of others and things like that but these good aspects of drinking the cacao we can incorporate. You know, and so so we bring that into the life of the, of the church. So like a, you know, like on a, the night before a feast day that the ga- the community's gathered, they're probably preparing the food for the next day, and they're kind of and they're drinking the cacao and they're singing the songs and they're, and they're together and they're pur- purifying the space through their through their harmony together and the songs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so the processes, so that they so that they make sense and and that they're, the the word we really use is is synthesis. So it's not syncretism. So it's not like oh, I drink. I drink cacao at home, and then I go to mass. But they're they're two different worlds. But rather, if you know, if if it's valid in, in your in your home life as a, as a Catholic and all right, then it, it, it's it's valid in, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but they're processes, and yeah. so it's interesting in like the whole theological, uh, the process of like indigenous theology or theology in India that has a number of different strands. But it's really based on that of uh, that people reflecting. So right right now we're in, on, we're in a lot of reflection about. Uh, spirit and and the Holy Spirit, and so all, a lot of different co- communities reflecting on that, and they'll be gathering in Panama in February to spend five days together and talking about the Spirit uh, amongst the indigenous people, um, and in a you know in, in kind of a, a a way that's that starts with each culture and then a sharing between the cultures and what coincides and what's distinct and 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 in dialogue with. Uh, with our Christian faith, and there's always those, you know, maybe those moments of purifying where you say, okay, well, this really isn't compatible. We need to decide. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, thank God, a lot of moments where you say, well, this really expresses what you know. We can we can give the <laughs> Jesus's <laughs> words to really found this. You know, this is the expression of solidarity and of love and care for the other and all those kinds of things. So, um, so there are there's like there's some formal processes. There's, you know, predominantly when you talk about indigenous theology, you're talking with people have done in a more organic way in the course of 500 years, yeah. which in, in which in recent decades has been more systematic in gatherings and, and writings, um, but it's not new in in, in a sense. Um, it's what the it's what the indigenous communities have been doing since the gospel came. And really, before you would say, you know, 
indigenous communities that that shared spiritual understanding and, and, and practice before the gospel came. So like I mentioned that the drinking of cacao through all of Mesoamerica, you know, it was shared somehow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that it wasn't just that happened that everyone decided this particular fruit is going to be, you know, a, a sacred one for us. Um, so when the gospel came, there was, a, there was there's an openness to that. Um, you know, there's always going to be errors along the way, but that's with any community, you know? <laughs> sure, sure. In, 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 in the current moment and in the past where they're going to make mistakes and say, this really goes against what we proclaim on, <laughs> on Sunday morning, you know, but, you know. Um, but, yeah, so I think it's really, I think really like process, dialogue, and synthesis are really kind of like the words when you talk about when it's done, when it's done well. Yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes they're long processes, you know. Sure. It's not the kind of thing you come, you know, you come together for a meeting and, and solve. Yeah. <laughs> You know. So what would the criteria, you, you mentioned, so you have to, you know, at some point make decisions about what's compatible and mm -hmm. what's not. What sort of criteria do you use? Yeah, I mean, so some of it, like, um, for example, if you were to talk about, uh, like, you talk about the, the cacao. So if we're drinking the cacao and things like that, for the nobe, there's an understanding of the spirit world. And so at one point I had to, like, confirm that. So I said, well, if you didn't believe in the way that we understand of spirits and, and that kind of things, could you still hold this together? And said, no, it doesn't make any more any sense. And so the question is then, well, in, in Western culture in general, we kind of have, have let go of understanding that there are spirits, good and bad, that are running around. But biblically and, and, and faith-wise, it's very much there. So the sense of like, well, is it is it Catholic? And even our Catholic teaching all this stuff, well, it absolutely is. It's just that in our cultural, you know, in, in, in the last centuries and say Western culture, we've let go of that. So does it make it invalid for them? Uh, and, and, and so I would say no. I'd say it absolutely. So and it, it's it's an essential part for for making it that. Um, but I think yeah. So I think it. Like I've done a lot of it, my focus has been more dialogue with Catholic social teaching, but with noble practice and 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 cosmovision. Uh, and so there comes points where you say you know you get the understanding like if you go back to that like an interconnected web of life. Uh, nobody would go further than the Catholic Church goes in terms of our uh, connection to. Uh, to the rest of creation. So you have, you know, even from Pope John Paul, who spoke of, in a sense of, of solidarity with creation, and Pope Benedict, who spoke about human ecology, and then, of course, with Laudato Si, um, and even, even talks about interconnectedness and, and these kinds of things. Um, so the, the Nove would be further along that line of interconnectedness. And so the question becomes, is the whole church moving towards that? Is theology moving towards that, or are they wrong? Or... That they more have they would have much more the biblical understanding of it that we let go of and it kind of be cycling around where they've never left, yeah. you know, kind of thing. So it, so, you know, they're not easy questions, but you don't want to you know sometimes draw on the line to say, you know, do, do we need to do we need to let them know that no humans aren't part of, of, of God's bigger you know creation is just for us and so well, no the Pope's very much talking about dominion and those kinds of things were very much a bad interp a poor interpretation of of our relationship to creation, so maybe we need some more to learn from them. Although they, their expression might not be exactly where Catholic, where Catholic theology is in, in terms of in an official sense, reason that Dato Si wouldn't go that far. Yeah. Um, so it's you know it's an interesting we're talking about theological frontier. Um, uh, but there's other things that you might say. Okay, well the the, the, the Nove culture and cosmovision isn't perfect. So I want to make it that that you know it's just like better and they have everything correct. You know. Right. Um, so there's other things, you know, the focus on the heavy focus on community and the, and the, and the, and the, the good of the community um, maybe doesn't prioritize enough the dignity of the individual person in a way that 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 we would. So so maybe like 
maybe in Western culture, or even in, 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 in the theological environment, things like that, we've gone to a more individual interpretation of, of, of faith and salvation and those kinds of things where, you know, we would maintain it in, in, a, in a wider sense. For example, uh, sin wasn't particularly personal sin and redemption from sin wasn't particularly normally cultural peace. And it's still not as it would be in, in say, like non culture. So it's not really it's not really a sin culture. It's a, it, 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 in that sense, um, there's a, there's there's this there's a struggle between good and evil that's always happening in human spirits. And so, um, and things are dealt dealt with in a different way and understood in a different way. Um, now there is you know an understanding of sin now with with, with Christianity, but the, the, the question becomes then: Do you have to make it as individualistic as as maybe? Flow from a, <laughs> you know, from a cult is, you know, it's like like say here in in, in the stage where like maybe a, a general culture would influence a lot our faith and our interpretation of it rather than our faith making an impact on on living it out in, in the culture. Um, so it's always that caution of not trying to be overly, <laughs> um, you know, just saying like with Catholic social teaching for example that really came out of European context and yeah. and, and and questions, you know, which had its validity in a sense that it was responding to. to to those questions in, in, in terms of the industrialized world and labor and, and all those kinds of things, where the no big questions are different. And so, uh, and so how does, you know, how do you put that in dialogue with, with other things? And then where do the no big kind of surface other concepts that aren't in Catholic social teaching and where Catholic social teaching certain concepts wouldn't have the same uh, impact because it's in a very different context. So, I mean, that's kind of where I, I would say a lot of my um, dialogues, and it's not, not coming to very concrete solutions. This usually ends up more questions than <laughs> than answers. That's life. But it really, yeah, yeah. But it really kind of opens things up and, and, and kind of you know uh, makes you makes you yeah, makes you question a lot in terms of things that maybe you take for granted or maybe we had nicely packaged. You know, right. so evangelization. I say you know, um, I didn't think I was going in you know 15 years ago to kind of like you know teach people that this you know ignorant context something like that. Um, but I also maybe didn't realize how much the people were really going to be my teachers there and how much I was going to be the student, <laughs> which is the daily situation. You know, it's constantly, it's constantly listening. I'm constantly sitting on a stoop listening to an elder talk about something that just kind of <laughs> challenges <laughs> my own journey, my own understanding of faith and God and us and all that kind of stuff. And so in that sense, it's been a real, you know, it's always been a real blessing, you know, a yeah. challenge and a, and a, and a, and a blessing. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful. Um, can I ask you just to, uh, about one of your other projects? You um, were instrumental in the first World uh, Indigenous Youth Day. Right. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the way that kind of went, um, when Pope Francis in, in Krakow, Poland, announced Panama as the next site for that, because at the end of World Youth Day, they always say, oh, the next one will be in 2019 in Panama. I was standing in the field with four indigenous youth and Nauba youth because we had decided as Vincentians to take four, with our Panama delegation to the Vincentian gathering and then World Youth Day, to take four Norway. And they would go more as like a Norway delegation than a Panamanian delegation, dressed as Norway, their cultural presentations were Norway. And so it was, it was a great experience. But coming from that, coming back right away with these four formed Norway youth leaders and then a conversation to quickly spread to say, well, what, what does this mean that have here in Panama now this World Youth Day? And so it really, the conversation went with the other contacted through indigenous ministry with the other indigenous youth that uh, there had to be good participation, the inclusion of indigenous youth, that this couldn't happen and it not be very visible that the indigenous youth were there, um, that it's a chance for youth leadership, indigenous leadership, and that it's also an opportunity to promote like a consciousness in the wider church and society in Panama and beyond. 
So it, it, there was a much larger plan than the World Indigenous Youth Gathering in terms of impacting uh, World Youth Day in general from the Indigenous perspective, which then got uh, Pope Francis really responded to and really uh, got captured. Um, but the, the, one of the, the principal pieces was a four-day gathering in Soloy. Soloy was selected, there had been such a mission there, the St. Vincent Paul Parish, uh, because of the active Nolde youth. And, 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 uh, and because it's alongside a river, it would be very, you know, a good, just a good, <laughs> a good environment to have the whole gathering, stuff like that. And so uh, the event was organized and it, it kind of expanded. We first thought about Panamanian indigenous youth and Central American, North of Mexico, and then continental. And then we just put the, the word out for what we called, they ended up calling it World Indigenous Youth Day. So there were even from, from the Philippines, from, from Australia, from Africa, that tried to come and couldn't make it. So it ended up being really, uh, really Latin American. There were some North Americans, but basically Latin America. But more than 40 uh, peoples and languages, about 400 pilgrims, and then about 2,000 Nolde to complement that. So it was a very large gathering. Um, but just a wonderful uh, experience, um, a bit different than a lot of other, you know, pre-gatherings for World Youth Day because it was very difficult issues. The youth themselves went through a process of, uh, in the Panamanian indigenous youth, of putting together the themes, um, which the first day was really about identity in, 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 in a lot of times front, in front of racism and exclusion and all that kind of stuff, what it means to, to be Quechua, Aymara, and, and, and Mayan, um, and live that proudly. And so that first day was just testimonies, and, and, and the testimonies that would bring the tears of, of young people migrating, what it meant for them to go, even to something that seemed a very positive thing, like going to the university in a town, and then and then to be degraded because of their native dress. And I think, what does it mean to be to be proud? Of? The second day was based on uh, caring for our common home, which is a wonderful day. We also planted five thousand uh, tree seedlings during that, during that experience and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the third day was really based on um, commitment and those kinds of things. But the big surprise was that on the first day after the ritual of the opening ceremony, so the, the cardinal was there, our cardinal, and uh, and everybody was gathered and in a big circle, and each people came and put on the indigenous altar, which was a circle in the center in the shape of a, with a cross in the center, something that identified them. And then at the end of that, you know, it was a very like kind of solemn, and, and the songs and the and the, and the and the prayers were in all the different indigenous languages, just rotating. And, and when it was done, we brought a screen out, and then Pop, Pope Francis came out on the screen <laughs> and gave about a five-minute discourse to the youth. And he had received the theme, so he wasn't just saying anything. He was saying, "You're going to be talking about this. You're going to be talking about that." And so it was a, it was an incredible moment. You could imagine that no, nobody <laughs> I knew about it in the cards. So the only ones who knew about it, the people who organized it in the room. So when it happened, it was, you know, it, was a, it was a great relief that it was now out there. And it also brought a lot of attention nationally right away because at that point, the Pope wasn't in the country yet. This was the, this was the, right. the Friday before. So that was the national news. So it all of a sudden brought all this attention. And there were already, there was, the media was there from Rome, from, from Poland, from Madrid. They were camping out the four days in, 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 in Soloy and, and articles in all different languages and all that kind of stuff. But what it really did too, it strengthened the youth that going from there to, uh, to Panama City, there was this confidence, and it's really kind of like the vision we had that it wouldn't be go to Panama City for World Youth Day with with you know several hundred thousand youth, and then just kind of get lost in the crowd. Yeah. So with this whole experience there, and in Panama City, we actually set up an indigenous village in, in the main park where where a lot of the, the festival stuff was happening, um, and the indigenous youth were gathered to interact with 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 all the other pilgrims, um, and and all different things like that that happened, and the the youth who was uh, the youth coordinator for the World Indigenous Youth Gathering had lunch with the Pope. 
Oh, oh great. And, yeah. uh, and went fully dressed and, and, and every, so there was 10 youth from the world uh, that had a lunch with the Pope on the, on the Saturday World Youth Day. And so she, re she represented uh, the Americas and all indigenous youth of the world. And so the Pope uh, made a lot of comments afterwards about her <laughs> in a Jesuit gathering and then to the bishops and all that kind of stuff. Um, just in terms of the force that she spoke with when it was her turn to talk about it, everyone kind of gave their issue or what they, what they wanted the Pope to do or something like that. And she just let out in terms of the, in terms of the earth of those who don't care for, for, for creation and our common home and, and what this means and kind of stuff. And so he was, he was very impacted by it and spoke about it several times afterwards. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, um, it was interesting uh, because it came from below, I think is one of the key points, because the Vatican got, you know, got word of it. And then we did presentations when the Vatican representatives visit Panama. And then it kind of was named as like a bridge gathering for the Amazon Synod. People came that were going to be at the Amazon Synod to prepare themselves for the Amazon Synod came to Soloy. Um, and it was a constant theme there. Of course, there were Amazon, Amazonian youth there and also religious and who, who went on to the Amazon Synod. So it became this, this kind of event in the scheme of, of, of like global church events. And, and for Pope Francis, it was definitely seen that way. The first time he got word of it, he said, this needs to be done well, and kept attentive to it, and then sent the message to all that stuff. So, but it was the youth who put that all forward. So it was an interesting thing. So it wasn't a decision in the Vatican that we should do this, or we should, okay. It was youth who said, we're, we're doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and they really uh, captured attention. And what came out in English in the, in the, in the cycle here of uh, in U.S. papers, Catholic papers, you know, and the Aston papers and all that kind of stuff, uh, through Catholic News Service was an article that said, the marginalized take center stage at World Youth Day. And there's a Nobe girl and a, and a, and a Kuna uh, girl who had just read the communication from the gathering, which is very strong, about land rights, genocide, and, and, and all these kinds of things. And they gave about two hours of interviews that were translated in all different kinds of languages and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I thought it was a great thing because they took center stage because they had a message that they wanted. They, yeah. they weren't given center stage <laughs> by any means. Um, they did it by with a lot of work and dedication. And we continue to see the fruits of that. So I think, I mean, one of the main things I say, what, which one of the main fruits of that is to say, you know, when we talk about the indigenous, what they can teach us in the future, that it's not a look, it's not a look back. It's not to try to capture something. It's young people doing it in their own way with it, with their commitment. And they, 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 they want to uh, be, uh, they want to be part of their, of their culture. They want to project it. And they know that they have, a, that God's given them a gift within their culture that they want to share with others. Uh, and, and, and we see them with now with a confidence to do that. So it's been a wonderful experience. <laughs> wow, that's beautiful. Thank you, Joe. That's a, a, a great note on which to end. Um, thank you so much for um, bringing the message of what the Nove people have to teach us um, and uh, taking that out into the, into the whole world. It's a beautiful vision of a, a better world and uh, uh, a better future for, the, for both the church and the world. So. Thank you so much. Thanks so, thanks so much for the invitation. Near and Far is produced by the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology, a research institute focused on Catholicism around the world with special attention to the church in the so-called Global South. The center is sponsored by DePaul University, a Catholic university in the Vincentian tradition in Chicago. Production assistance for Near and Far comes from Marlon Aguilar, Elijah Gray, and Karen Kraft. For more information on the center and its activities, look for the Center for World Catholicism on the web, Facebook, or Twitter.